Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. The 2008 Schulman Lectures, presented by Yale's Whitney Humanities Center, address the topic of religion and the Big Bang and explore how contemporary scientific, philosophical, and religious thinkers endeavored to define and bridge the boundaries between scientific cosmology and religion. In this lecture, Tede Smidis, a fellow of the Faculty of Theology at the Catholic University of Louvain, speaks on a universe of one's own, cosmology, theology, and atheology. The greatest, vastest, and most difficult of all cosmic problems is that of the origin and development of the world. The question of creation, in a word. Even to the solution of this most difficult world riddle, the 19th century has contributed more than all its predecessors. In a certain sense, indeed, it has found the solution. These are not my words, but these are the words of the eminent German biologist Ernest Haeckel from his classic work, Die Welträtsel, translated into English as The Riddle of the Universe. Haeckel's book was published originally in 1899 at a time when many scientists believed it was just a matter of a few more years that all the remaining problems of physics and cosmology would be solved. And students that wanted to study physics were advised to take up a study that offered more perspective for a future career. Haeckel writes, the current opinion as to the origin of the world in earlier ages was almost a universal belief in creation. And he goes on, this belief has been expressed in thousands of interesting, more or less fabulous legends, poems, cosmogenies, and myths. However, all the creation myths were of a supernatural, miraculous, and transcendental character. Incompetent as it was to investigate for itself the nature of the world and its origin by natural causes, the undeveloped mind naturally had recourse to the idea of miracle." End of quote. Now, the errors in the belief that the universe is the product of divine creation are apparent, according to Haeckel, since he believed scientists had found a rational theory which would be able to explain the origin of the world by natural causes. Haeckel was convinced that the answer to the problem of the origin of the universe lay in the idea of a universal developmental process that was articulated by Charles Darwin, evolution. Now, does Haeckel conclude that the world as we now know it has a beginning in time and evolved from there to the world we perceive today? Well, no. Haeckel writes, and I quote, we are justified in concluding, if not logically compelled to conclude, that the persistence of matter and force has been held good throughout all time as it does today. And Haeckel concludes that the extent of the universe is infinite and unbounded. It is empty in no part but everywhere, filled with substance. And that the duration of the world is equally infinite and unbounded. It has no beginning and no end, it is eternity. Haeckel's universe is static, unchanging, and eternal. There is no need to talk about creation. Since the universe has neither beginning nor end, it just is. Now, in our present era, it's extremely hard to understand that people, scientists even, ever seriously considered a static, eternal universe. We have grown so accustomed to the idea of an evolving universe that the notion that the universe is eternal sounds ludicrous. And yet, Merely 100 years ago, the notion that the universe was static and eternal was so pervasive that even Albert Einstein could not live with an evolving universe. 
when Edwin Hubble published a paper in 1929 wherein he showed that the universe was expanding, which obviously suggested that it, the universe had been smaller at some point uh, and that the universe was expanding, Einstein tried to rescue the static and eternal universe by introducing, or rather inventing, a cosmological constant. Now this constant, as astronomer Marcello Glaser explains, was a cosmic repulsion term that was chosen to exactly balance the tendency of matter to collapse upon itself. Einstein knew that its sole reason to exist was to produce a static and stable finite universe. It didn't occur to him that a changing dynamical universe was also a possibility, quietly hiding behind his equations. So even Einstein, Glaser concludes, could sometimes miss the boat. So not even a century ago, many scientists believed in a static and eternal universe. As the theologian and philosopher Willem Drace writes, the standard Big Bang theory represents the scientific consensus only since the mid-1960s. The theory describes the cooling down, expansion, and gradual evolution of the universe from an initial moment of infinite density and temperature, which is called the singularity. So far, cosmologists estimate the age of the universe at approximately 13.7 billion years. Yet we need to bear two things in mind. First, that the standard Big Bang theory is not really about the initial Big Bang 13.7 billion years ago. As Drace writes, the standard theory is only valid after the temperature and density have dropped sufficiently, less than a second after the singularity. It would be appropriate to call this moment, slightly later than the singularity, the Big Bang. But the term Big Bang is also used for the singularity itself, and it is even used for the first few hundred thousand years. So in cosmology, it's not always clear to what exactly the term Big Bang refers to. Furthermore, the real Big Bang uh, took place at t equals zero. Yet the standard theory is unable to reconstruct the moment before the so-called Planck time, that is 10 to the power of minus 43 seconds after the Big Bang. The known natural laws break down before that threshold, and the situation becomes so exotic that every theory that moves to penetrate the moment before the Planck time is still extremely speculative. So the singularity thus remains shrouded in mystery, although new quantum cosmologies are trying to reveal its secrets. Now when in the following I speak about the Big Bang, I will speak about the standard Big Bang theory, and the aforementioned reservation should be borne in mind. Now what interests me as a theologian is the fact that while Darwin's evolutionary theory has been controversial theologically from the publication of Darwin's On the Origins of Species in 1859, the cosmological Big Bang theory has hardly ever been controversial among theologians. Rejection of the Big Bang came from scientists, as we will see, not theologians. Religious believers seem to have little difficulty with accepting the Big Bang theory, but does that mean that the Big Bang theory is a scientific corroboration of the Christian doctrine of creation? Has the Big Bang theory proven the validity of the Christian doctrine of creation ex nihilo? Could it ever do so? Now, though the term Big Bang refers to the moment that our universe exploded into existence about 40 billion years ago, the term itself is barely 58 years old. The term was coined by the astrophysicist Fred Hoyle, who was born in 1915 and died in 2001. In 1949, Hoyle and a colleague, the physicist George Gamow, 
were invited by the BBC to debate about the origin of the universe. Hoyle was known for his fierce refusal to accept the notion of a Big Bang-like beginning of the universe, while Gamow was in favor of such a notion. Now, during the BBC debate, Hoyle flung a sarcastic remark in the direction of Gamow to ridicule theories that point to a temporal beginning of the universe. And I quote, these theories were based on the hypothesis that all the matter in the universe was created in one Big Bang at a particular time in the remote past, end of quote. Now, this is how Hoyle introduced the term Big Bang into the debate, and the term stuck. And so today we still speak about the Big Bang theory, although any connotation of an initial explosion remained completely metaphorical. I find Hoyle an intriguing man. Simon Singh, in his wonderful book Big Bang, categorizes Hoyle among the mavericks of the cosmos. Hoyle was a daredevil among cosmologists. He was eccentric, with a stunning lack of diplomatic abilities, but with an unstoppable longing for scientific knowledge. And he had some really wild ideas. He believed in the so-called panspermia hypothesis, the view that life on Earth originates from outer space. Life was brought here by comets and meteorites, so Hoyle believed. Moreover, Hoyle believed comets and meteorites occasionally drop organic molecules on er and viruses on Earth that stimulate the evolution of life. He was also convinced that a new ice age is imminent. And he wrote a stack of science fiction novels and short stories, so he had a lot of imagination. Now, Hoyle is widely known as the most formidable and aggressive critic of the Big Bang Theory. He was convinced that the traditional model of the cosmos was correct, that the universe was eternal and unchanging. Even in the 1940s, when the Big Bang Theory was gaining increasing popularity due to the scientific data that seemed to confirm it, Hoyle tried to find scientific evidence for an eternal and static universe. Now, around 1946, Hoyle, with his two Cambridge colleagues, Herman Bondy and Thomas Gold, came up with a radically new model of the universe. Their model was extraordinary because it seemed to make an impossible compromise. It described the universe that was expanding, but which was still truly eternal and essentially unchanging. Until this point, cosmic expansion had been synonymous with the Big Bang moment of creation. But the new model suggested that Hubble's redshifts and the receding galaxies could also be allied with the traditional view of a universe that had existed forever. The universe, so Hoyle explained, was like a river, which is continually flowing, but, con but remains largely unchanged. Or look at our bodies. There is change, but also constancy, since cells die, and, uh, but are replaced by fresh cells in a continuous cycle. In Hoyle's so-called steady state model, uh, the universe compensated for its expansion by creating new matter in the growing gaps between the receding galaxies, so that the overall density of the universe would remain the same. Now, such a universe would apparently be developing and expanding, yet it would, be, it would remain largely unchanging, constant, and eternal. Now, in the years after 1946, the model was developed further. But as Hoyle and his colleagues published in scientific journals, the model also was increasingly um, criticized until no scientist se seriously considered it a valid option anymore. Yet until his death in 2001, Hoyle remained convinced that the Big Bang model was incorrect and would in due time 
be replaced by a more steady state-like model. Undoubtedly, Hoyle's stubbornness was part of his character. But Hoyle was also known to be a fervent atheist. Religion for Hoyle was escapism, a desperate attempt to escape the conditions of human existence. And Hoyle's rejection of the Big Bang model was motivated mainly because, according to him, it supported the Christian notion of creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. And Hoyle believed, often quoting the Greek philosopher Democritus, that ex nihilo nihil fit, out of nothing comes nothing for, uh, can come, uh, out of nothing, nothing can come forth. <laughs> the Big Bang and the creatio ex nihilo too closely resembled each other, and Hoyle was uncomfortable with that. And as the physicist Steven Weinberg later wrote, Hoyle's steady-state model nicely avoids the problem of Genesis. Yet, just how atheistic was Hoyle exactly? At first, Hoyle was convinced that the universe existed strictly coincidental, without a purpose. However, one of the interesting questions of modern cosmology is why the conditions of the universe seem so favorable for life to emerge. All the forces that are active in the universe seem fine-tuned so that um, if one of the conditions would have been slightly different, life would not have been possible. These are the so-called anthropic coincidences which arise from the fine-tuning of the cosmos. Now, Hoyle discovered this fine-tuning when he heard from a colleague that the existence of the element carbon, that's the element that is the source of life and that is produced in stars, depends on the fine-tuning of the universe. Now, Hoyle could not believe that and started calculating. Eventually, he concluded that the strong nuclear force, that is, the force that causes atomic nuclei to remain stable, is exactly right for carbon nuclei to form. Now, if someone had tuned the cosmic radio slightly differently, the stars would not have produced carbon, life would not have existed. And Hoyle would later write, nothing has shaken my atheism as much as this discovery. Now, the fine-tuning of the cosmos is one of the most remarkable discoveries of modern cosmology and is often used in design-like arguments to argue for a teleological perspective on the universe. It is not totally inappropriate to say that Hoyle also eventually came to the conclusion that underlying the universe is an intelligent design because he would forsake his atheism explicitly on the grounds of the fine-tuning. Hoyle became convinced that there was someone or something pushing the buttons of the universe. This was, according to Hoyle, a superintelligence that guides the universe through quantum processes. Hoyle called this cosmic intelligence God, but he stressed that it was quite unlike the God of the Christian faith. Hoyle's God was not transcendent. No, he was located inside the universe, part of the cosmic texture guiding the universe from the inside to its final goal. Moreover, this cosmic intelligence was temporarily located in the future, from where it was able to inspire people by planting ideas in their brains on the quantum level, ideas that were the source of mathematical musical inspiration. As I said, Hoyle had rather a lot of imagination. Hoyle was not alone in his atheistic rejection of the Big Bang Theory. The Swedish Nobel Prize in Physics laureate, Hannes Alfen, in the 1960s also rejected the Big Bang model because he saw it as an attempt to clothe ancient myths in scientific dress to give them new respectability. The Big Bang theory was unscientific precisely because it presupposed a divine creation. 
Still, even in 1984, Alphen stated a very important conclusion from the Big Bang cosmology, which is seldom drawn explicitly, is that the state at the singular point necessarily, necessarily presupposes a divine creation. And the British physicist William Bonner suggested that the Big Bang theory was part of a worldwide conspiracy aimed at shoring up Christianity. Now, Alphen and Bonner were surely correct in seeing that the Big Bang theory appeals to Christians. Jane Gregory, in her wonderful biography of Fred Hoyle, quotes Hoyle's Cambridge colleague Thomas Gold saying, we had intensely religious people very much for us. Others were much against us. The biblical religious people wanted, wanted a moment of creation, and obviously the Big Bang was their stuff. Now today one can still hear voices of people claiming that the Big Bang theory presupposes or leads to the conclusion of a creator God. Theologian Mark William Worthing argues that, and I quote, no other theory of modern science has corresponded more closely to, nor met so well the requirements of, a doctrine of creation than the theory of the Big Bang. And the evangelical philosophers Paul Copan and William Lane Craig state, and I quote again, given the biblical and theological grounds for the doctrine of creatio ex nihilo, we should expect to observe something like a Big Bang universe rather than a steady state universe or an eternally oscillating universe. Given the evidence, the Big Bang does plausibly repre represent the creation event." End of quote. In 1978, Robert Jestrow from NASA published in the New York Times an article with the title, Found God? Jestrow is an, is an agnostic but argues that theologians are probably delighted that the astronomical evidence for the Big Bang leads to a biblical view of Genesis. In his book, God and the Astronomers, Jastrow states the following, and I quote again, now we see how astronomical evidence leads to the biblical view of the origin of the world. The details differ, but the essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. For the scientist who has lived by the faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Now, even George Gamow, the physicist who debated with Hoyle about the Big Bang, linked the Big Bang theory to a religious worldview. Though Gamow himself was an atheist, he sent copies of his cosmological articles and books to Pope Pius XII after the Pope endorsed the cosmological Big Bang theory. Moreover, he published the Pope's endorsement at the start of a paper he published in Physical Review in 1952. Now, what was this endorsement? In an address to the Pontifical Academy of Science in 1951, Pope Pius XII praised cosmologists for the Big Bang theory, which the Pope thought to be entirely compatible with the, Christian view, uh, with the Christian doctrine of creation. And the Pope concluded, and I quote again, thus with that concreteness which is characteristic of physical proofs, it has confirmed the contingency of the universe and also the well-founded deduction as to the epoch when the cosmos came forth from the hands of the creator. Therefore, God exists. Now, ironically, the Pope's endorsement of the Big Bang Theory infuriated one of the founders of the Big Bang Theory, a priest and scientist, the Belgian George Lemaitre, who lived from 1894 to 1966. 
even though the Catholic, Catholic University of Louvain, where I presently work and where Lemaitre has worked almost his entire life, has largely forgotten him, such is life, I suppose, I believe Lemaitre is still a fantastic example of how science and theology can be simultaneously present in the same person while still acknowledging the constitutive difference between the two. Lemaitre had, had studied both physics and theology and he had always been careful to keep his parallel careers in cosmology and theology on separate tracks. After having learned about Hubble's redshift discoveries, Lemaitre had written a scientific paper in 1927 on the implications of Einstein's equations, which to his mind did not imply that the universe was static and eternal, but that it was expanding. The paper was originally published in an obscure Belgian journal, but in 1931, Sir Arthur Eddington published an English translation along with a commentary. Lemaitre was thereafter invited to come to London to take part in a meeting of the British Association on the relation between the physical universe and spirituality, and it was at that meeting that Lemaitre proposed his model of an expanding universe, which started from an initial state, a temporal origin, which Lemaitre described as the primeval atom. Now, this idea of the primeval atom, which became the basis of the later Big Bang theory, entailed the following. Lemaitre proposed a super-dense state of already existing matter. It was cold, massive, indeed containing all the mass of the known universe, and immediately began to disintegrate its radioactive content, literally forming the matter, time, and space out of which stars and galaxies and the cosmos would form. The primeval atom was a super quantum sphere that divided and subdivided through a process of radioactive decay that gave birth to the evolving cosmos, a sort of cold big bang as space expanded. Now, obviously the fact that Lemaitre was a Roman Catholic priest caused a lot of suspicion, especially since his ideas about the primeval atom seemed to be consonant with the notion of creation out of nothing. Hoyle was one of the biggest skeptics, but Lemaitre's Cambridge teacher, Arthur Eddington, himself a Quaker, so a religious believer himself, also found the notion unpleasant. Einstein expressed suspicion due to the seeming consonance between the Christian doctrine of creation and science, yet Lemaitre remained extremely clear about separating science and theology. As one of his biographers, John Farrell writes, and I quote, if there was a temporal origin of the universe's evolution, then it seemed to many scientists to imply the act of creation. In Lemaitre's view, it did not have to imply that. In many ways, he felt the argument is based on misunderstanding, on a misunderstanding of terms, one that many scientists are prone to make and one that theologians are less likely to. That assumption is, what a theologian or philosopher means by creation is the same thing as what a physicist means by origin. Lemaitre indeed would not even have allowed a term like creation to be used credibly in a scientific paper." End of quote. Indeed, Lemaitre seemed to acknowledge the constitutive difference between scientific and religious discourse. Or as Lemaitre formulated it at a conference in 1961, as far as I can see, such a theory remains entirely outside any metaphysical or religious questions. It leaves the material materialist free to deny any transcendental being, and for the believer, it removes any attempt at familiarity with God." End of quote. 
Lemaitre thus makes it clear that everyone lives in his or her own universe. The atheist lives in a pointless universe governed by chance. The religious believer lives in a created universe governed by divine providence. The Big Bang Theory is entirely compatible with both these different universes and favors no one in particular. Lemaitre never made the mistake of conflating theological and scientific terms, but Fred Hoyle and other skeptics did, and so did Pope Pius XII. The Pope's endorsement of the Big Bang Theory infuriated Lemaitre, not only because of the theological naivete of the Pope, but also because he felt the incident had confirmed the suspicions of many scientific colleagues, including Hoyle, that the Big Bang Theory was justifiably suspect because Lemaitre's faith rather than physics had inspired the theory of the expansion of the universe from its origin in a super-dense state. Lemaitre decided to take action, and both Lemaitre and the director of the Vatican Observatory, the Jesuit astronomer Daniel O'Connell, met with the Pope to explain that such blatant connections drawn between science and theology would not help the cause of the church nor the progress of science. Now, their passionate plea was successful, and as a result, the Pope would at meetings with scientists no longer speak about religious and metaphysical implications of the Big Bang Theory or other theories. And yet, until his death in 1966, Lemaitre remained convinced that the damage had already been done. So deep was his disappointment that after 1951, he no longer showed any interest in a further development of his primeval atom model. Now, why would a theologian like Lemaitre distinguish between the scientific study of the origin of the universe and the Christian notion of creation? Why would he resist the urge to connect the creator God of the Christian tradition to the question of the origin of the universe? The recent Templeton Prize winner, Michael Heller, who is a Polish priest and cosmologist, writes that the classical Big Bang theory indeed leaves open the question what the initial singularity was and that this may tempt some to search for a theological answer. And I quote, in the Big Bang, the history of the universe as contemplated backwards in time breaks down, creating an enormous gap in our knowledge. We do not know where the Big Bang comes from. We ignore its cause. We know nothing about the previous state of the world. We have no idea whether the world even existed before that critical event. Our ignorance is immense, and it seems that only the hypothesis of God could help, end of quote. But Heller strongly condemns such a move, which he sees at a, as a God of the gaps strategy. And I quote him again, God of the gaps theology represents a lack of imagination for what is now a boundary of science can soon be its well-explored region. In this context, Heller points to Stephen Hawking's cosmological model, which goes beyond the classical Big Bang theory by invoking quantum mechanical principles. Hawking portrays the universe as a self-contained unity that has no need of an external first cause. Although admittedly speculative in nature, Hawking provides an explanation for the Big Bang that has no need for God. Indeed, as the astronomer and atheist Carl Sagan writes in the foreword of Hawking's A Brief History of Time, and I quote, this is also a book about God, or perhaps the absence of God. The word God fills these pages. Hawking is attempting, as he explicitly states, to understand the mind of God. And this makes all the more unexpected the conclusion of the effort, at least so far. A universe with no edge in space, no beginning in time, 
and nothing for a creator to do, end of quote. In other words, when science progresses, it may fill the gaps that previous science was unable to fill. If theology marries a specific science of a specific era, it may be that when science progresses, theology is left behind as the weeping widow. Heller, however, argues that Carl Sagan in his remark also presupposes a God of the gaps. And I quote, Sagan clearly suggests that God should be rejected. For people accepting this, God is necessarily God of the gaps. There are or will be no gaps, therefore the hypothesis of God is superfluous, or one could put it shortly, no gaps, no God, end of quote. Hawking's model is a theoretical construct in which the universe is closed and self-contained. Sagan now argues that if Hawking's model is correct, there are no gaps in the theory or in reality, so that God becomes a superfluous concept. Or put positively, Sagan apparently presupposes that it is only reasonable to talk about God when the universe is somehow open when there are somehow gaps in our understanding of the world, or even better, when there are gaps in the world itself. If there are no gaps, then there is no God. Now, the idea that God can only be spoken about when our understanding of the world comes to an end is not only inherent to the theological use of the Big Bang Theory. If one looks at the field of religion and science in general, such pointing to gaps in our knowledge or to gaps in the world is extremely common. Quantum mechanics is a case in point. Scholars like Nancy Murphy and jo Robert John Russell have argued that God may be active at the quantum level, where there is genuine chance and genuine openness, so that God could be at work there without our being able to notice it or without having to suspend any laws of nature. Evolutionary theory is another case in point. Creationists and proponents of intelligent design argue that the Darwinian mechanisms are insufficient to explain the complexity of some biological systems. Such systems are irreducibly complex, and evolutionary explanations of such systems should at least be complemented by the possibility that a supernatural designer has been active at some crucial points in evolutionary history. Again, God can only come in when scientific knowledge is absent. I even venture to say the field of science and religion abounds with subtle God-of-the-gap strategies. Of course, this also goes the other way around. Atheists like Richard Dawkins, Tanner Eders, and Victor Stenger have argued that the hypothesis of God should be rejected because science has shown it to be superfluous. These atheists presuppose a God-of-the-gaps just as much as many Christian believers do. So the God-of-the-gap strategy is curiously attractive for many people. The fact which is often overlooked about God of the gap strategies is that it presupposes a competition between God and creation, as if God and creation act on the same level. From the very beginnings of the Judeo-Christian tradition, however, there has existed an acknowledgement of a categorical distinction between God and the world. God is transcendent. He is the creator of the universe and therefore of an entirely different order than the, creature, than the creaturely. God cannot be compelled or constrained by powers inherent in the universe because in the Christian tradition it is said that God stands above the laws of nature. God transcends them. Now I know that there's also talk about God's imminence, God's indwelling and presence in creation. 
But this should never be taken to mean that God can be identified with a created entity. Even when imminently present, God remains transcendent. Now, what does God's transcendence mean? I shall not give a description of, the, of all the different uses that the term transcendence has had in the past. I follow the definition of a Dutch colleague of mine, Arjen Marcus, who a few years ago published his PhD dissertation, of which the title sums up the central meaning of the term transcendence, beyond finitude. His definition of God's transcendence is, and I quote, God's being other than the universe and being beyond its limits and limitations. God is considered as transcending the finitude of the world in the sense that God is not at all bound by the limits of time, change, or space, at least not in the way creatures are. Now, this last qualification is important because it underlines that God is other than the universe and clearly not human-like because his way of existence goes beyond the limits of existence of all things in the universe. God thus cannot be limited by God's creation. The limits that pertain to the creaturely are no limits for God. Now, taking such a view on God's transcendence seriously has consequences for the way people speak and think about God. Our ways of thinking about what is possible or impossible are very much colored by science. Philip Clayton, for example, speaks about the presumption of naturalism which entails that for any event in the natural world, that its cause is a natural one, as opposed to a supernatural one. To give an example, and I quote Clayton, if walking through the forest, I hear a branch break from a tree and observe it falling to the ground, I assume that its cause was a weakening of the wood and that it was propelled to the, gro to the ground by gravity, not that God ripped it from the tree and tossed it to the ground, end of quote. Now let us suppose that Clayton is right. What does this entail for theology? Clayton argues that theists should take the presumption of naturalism very seriously and should say, and I quote Clayton, only when I have ruled out other possible explanations should I turn to the possibility that the event must therefore have God as its cause, end of quote. Now what are these possible explanations that Clayton refers to? Well, they are the explanations provided to us by science. They are physical possibilities, possible causes that are compatible with the laws of nature. What Clayton misses, however, is that for philosophers, the set of physical possibilities is merely a subset of the much broader and possibly infinite set of logical possibilities. That I would jump so high as to overcome the pull of gravity and fly off into space may be impossible from a physical or scientific point of view. But it remains a logical possibility which may be exploited in a science fiction story. Or that a human being would rise from the dead after three days may be scientifically implausible and by some even considered impossible judged on the basis of our present knowledge about death and decay of a human body. Yet it remains a logical possibility. A logical impossibility is a contradiction. To say that Jack is a married bachelor is nonsense since it is a contradiction in term. But there is no contradiction involved in saying that if I had a long enough rope, I could pull the moon down to earth. 
Now, the problem with God of the gap strategies, of which Clayton's dictum that we should turn to the possibility of divine action only after we have ruled out possible explanations, is a beautiful example, is that it collapses the distinction between logical and physical possibilities and reduces the set of logical possibilities to what is merely physically or scientifically possible. The search for God in the gaps of scientific theories assumes the presumption of naturalism, but it does not do justice to God's transcendence. For the limits that pertain to scientific possibilities do not pertain to God, since God's transcendence means that he is beyond creaturely finitude. So to search for God in the gaps of scientific theories has the effect that it puts limits on our conceptualization of God and it diminishes God effectively to a physical possibility that moreover competes with other physical possibilities. Such thinking domesticates God's transcendence. It is a way of fitting God into the bounds of human imagination. In that case, God is no longer God, but he becomes a figment of our imagination. Such a God is definitely an illusion. But as we have seen from talking about connections between the Big Bang Theory and, Christian, and the Christian doctrine of creation, both atheists and theologians are highly susceptible to deluding themselves. Now, Michael Heller seems very aware of this and speaks about attempts of connecting God to the singularity of the Big Bang as, and I quote, an abuse of cosmology. From a theological point of view, it reduces God to the rank of a dubious methodological principle. From a scientific point of view, it violates a rule never to go beyond natural phenomena, end of quote. So one of the reasons for Lemaitre's refutation to connect God talk with the cosmological Big Bang theory may have been that he feared the concept of God would be diminished. God's transcendence, which also entails that God forever will surpass our understanding and imagination, would be domesticated, tamed, and made into something that fits our understanding. The God of whom the medieval monk Anselm of Canterbury famously spoke as that than which nothing greater can be conceived, would be made into a mere extension of scientific knowledge, and as such, an extension of the world itself. The categorical distinction between God's transcendence and the world would simply vaporize. Moreover, God would become liable to vaporizing himself. For as scientific knowledge increases, God may become a superfluous concept, and as the example of Stephen Hawking shows. There is another point that needs to be raised. I said previously that taking God's transcendence seriously has consequences for the way people speak and think about God. Now, I have spoken about the thinking part, but have not yet referred to the linguistic part. How does taking God's transcendence seriously have anything to do with our speaking about God? Now, if God is beyond finitude, that also means that God, properly speaking, cannot be spoken about. Here, I believe the negative theology of the mystics has a good point. The consequence of saying that God is beyond anything creaturely is that he cannot be spoken about, since every word we use was originally used to designate something within the world, be it something real, like a horse, an apple pie, or a beautiful woman, or something imaginary, like a unicorn or the beauty of Nicole Kidman. Our imagination is our human imagination, part of the created world, just as our language is. 
If God surpasses that created world, we should be aware that no language in the world will ever be able to describe God. So I believe theological realism is doomed to fail in the end. All that our language can do is function as a pointer, to point at, to that which surpasses our world, but of which we can also not be silent about. If we would remain silent about God, if we would no longer speak about God, God would disappear as well. A radical negative theology that remains absolutely silent about God will in the end kill itself. We need to speak about God. Our language reflects the way we speak about the world and the ways we experience that world. So if the concept of God would disappear from our language, we would no longer be able to experience God's presence. Thus, contemporary theologians face the irreducible dilemma the medieval mystics were confronted with. We have to use language that originates in our everyday usage of language, which is ultimately inadequate to talk about God, and yet we have no other language at our disposal, and we cannot remain silent. We should thus be very much aware of the fact that God talk is a venture with certain risks. And here we also have a source of the often so-called methodological atheism of the sciences that intelligent design adherents are rejecting so vehemently. Speaking about God in biology or any other science simply does not make sense. The word God has no place in a scientific discourse, be it perhaps as a kind of metaphor, since it is not clear what the word would refer to. Now all our language may be deeply metaphorical in nature, as some linguists have claimed, but at least in the case of language that is used in a scientific context, we can look at it, uh, look at what is talked about, smell it, hear it, measure it, whatever. But since God is beyond finitude, we can do no such thing with God. Bringing God into a scientific framework would thus make a mess out of science and it would result in bad theology. Allow me to end with some conclusions starting with language once more. If we take God's transcendence seriously, we should acknowledge first of all that our language used to speak about God is insufficient, ultimately inadequate, and extremely provisional. God language is not descriptive in the traditional sense of the word. And it definitely is not meant to give an explanation of, the things, of things in the scientific sense. But it has the power to evoke other dimensions of reality. It has the power to evoke other experiences of the world. And it helps in breaking open our traditional and habitual perspectives on reality so that we can look at the world in a new light or from a different angle, thereby revealing new aspects that were hitherto unseen. Furthermore, theology should not seek to find God in what is scientifically unknown. But because God talks should address the world that we know, this entails that theology should seek to connect to what is and to what is known. The German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in 1944 these famous words. How wrong it is to use God as a stopgap for the incompleteness of our knowledge. If in fact the frontiers of knowledge are being pu pushed further and further back, and that is bound to be the case, then God is being pushed back with them and is therefore continually in retreat. We are to find God in what we know, not in what we don't know. God wants us to realize his presence, not in unsolved problems, but in those that are solved. 
end of quote. So God should not be found in the gaps of reality or of our knowledge in the world, but should be found in our life world and in what we know. It is foolish when theology seeks or even tries to create gaps in scientific knowledge. But that theology should seek God in what is known should not water down to an all too easy concordism or harmonization between theology and science. Indeed, in what I have said before, I side with Lemaitre in seeing a constitutive difference between science and theology in general and between the Big Bang Theory and the Christian doctrine of creation in particular. The difference can most succinctly be expressed as a difference in attitude towards the world. The Christian doctrine of creatio ex nihilo expresses the attitude that the world is contingent. There is nothing that suggests that the world had to come into existence. Because it is contingent, it is therefore dependent on something else for its existence. Moreover, it expresses gratitude towards God for bringing it into existence, no matter how God did it. Now, when scientists, on the other hand, deal with the Big Bang Theory, they assume that what happened necessarily happened the way it did, given the physical conditions at the moment it happened. So the history of the universe, according to science, necessarily developed as it did, given the conditions as at t equals zero. It is logically and physically possible that the physical conditions themselves were contingent, being caused, for example, by random fl quantum fluctuations within the singularity. But whatever happened afterwards happened necessarily. At least that's the assumption. This necessity contrasts with the Christian expression of contingency. Moreover, the total dependency of what exists from something beyond the universe, be something beyond finitude, contrasts with the scientific assumption that the universe itself is an autonomous process that has its own internal lawfulness. Not only do scientists assume the autonomy of the universe, they also try to track down the laws of the universe. One can reflect on the issue whether the laws of the universe themselves are contingent on a transcendent source, but that is a theological or philosophical reflection that may be triggered by, yet in themselves surpass scientific thinking. There is moreover a constitutive difference in the character of these two contrasts, contingency, necessity, and dependency, autonomy. Namely, that the scientific attitude is a methodological attitude. Scientists need this attitude to do research. While the religious attitude is an existential attitude, religious believers express the dependency of their existence, of their hopes and their dreams to lie in the hands of God. I thus believe that the primary intention of the doctrine of creatio ex nihilo was not to give an explanation of how everything came to be, but to give an evaluation of what is. That there is a constitutive difference between science and theology may for some bog down to a complete separation of science and religion. I believe a static separation of science and theology is way too simple. There may be a dynamics between them, though the nature of such an interaction needs to be established on a case-by-case -case basis. Thus, I would speak about a dynamic constitutive difference between science and religion, which I will explain by giving three examples. First of all, 
as both atheists and theists seem to agree on, there is a resonance between the Big Bang Theory and the doctrine of creatio ex nihilo. Though Lemaitre was entirely correct in saying that there is a difference between the scientific talk about origins and the religious use of the term creation, people experience resonances or similarities between both concepts and this, these resonances cannot be denied. Secondly, though today there is a constitutive difference between the Big Bang Theory and the doctrine of creation, historically they may be linked, there may be a relation between them. It may even be, and I think it's quite plausible to say, that before modernity, speaking about origins and speaking about creation could not be separated. Thus, many books on the Big Bang Theory begin with ancient cosmolo cosmological myths of origins before proceeding to modern cosmological theories as if there is a certain continuity. And such a view has, I think, a certain validity. Thirdly and finally, Science may prove to be a rich source for metaphors that stimulate renewed and playful thinking about God, though such metaphors should always be considered provisional, liable to change, and should never be treated as literal or absolute descriptions. Take, for example, the cosmic background radiation, the remnant of the initial Big Bang that permeates the entire universe, it's all around us at this moment, but that we are only able to pick up if we are attuned to it, for example, by radio telescopes. The cosmic background radiation may prove to be a useful metaphor to talk about God's elusive omnipresence, the way God is imminently present everywhere, though he cannot be identified with something somewhere. Okay, I would like to end this talk by giving some wise words of Father Ernest Verreux one of Lemaitre's teachers from a Jesuit prep school in Brussels where Lemaitre studied mathematics in preparation for his entrance exam for the College of Engineering in Louvain. Once Lemaitre entered Verreux's room, really excited that he had found in a particular passage in Genesis a foreshadowing of developments in science. Now Verreux smiled and said, if there is a connection, it's a coincidence and of no importance. And if you should prove to me that it exists, I would consider it unfortunate. It will merely encourage more thoughtless people to imagine that the Bible teaches infallible science. Whereas the most we can say is that occasionally one of the prophets made a correct scientific guess. Thank you for your attention. This lecture was presented in the spring of 2008 as part of the distinguished Shulman Lectures in Science and the Humanities. These lectures were established to honor Robert Shulman, Sterling Professor Emeritus of Chemistry and Molecular Biophysics and Biochemistry, for his unwavering support for the integration of science and the humanities. Professor Smedes spoke on April 1, 2008 at Yale's Whitney Humanities Center.